All right. Good morning, everybody. Um, the weather's a little better right now than it was for first service. Uh, when I came to church this morning, it was hailing. You know, like, I know it's rare in California, but where the rain's like little ice balls, um, which is, is fitting because, you know, if you grew up out of state or some other place, you're like, no big deal. It's not even real ice. It melts when it hits the ground. But if you're lifelong California, it's a big deal when it hails. Like the little kids think it's like, like magic, you know? And, and for some of you, it's actually like, it's like a sign of the times. It's apocalyptic. It says there's ice, there's ice balls falling from the sky, man. And it's fitting because today we're talking about the end of the world. Uh, and we've been talking about the end of all things for a few weeks. For a few weeks now, we're in a section of scripture called the Olivet Discourse, and Jesus has been teaching on the, on the end. And today, he's going to finish this section, and it also finishes the last formal official teaching discourse by Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus will, of course, teach us some other things, say other things, some other events will happen, but from a literary perspective, this is the final official discourse of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew. So it's pretty important. And we've been tracking with this kind of talk about the end of all things ever since Jesus was asked a question, which we discussed a few weeks ago. Jesus was asked a question that really had two questions. When will the temple be destroyed and when will the, all, the end of all things occur? Jesus answered the first question, when will the temple be destroyed, by saying, when you see the sign of the abomination of desolation, that's when you know it's time to get out of Jerusalem. And historically, in 70 AD, the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, and the Christians and others who heeded the words, the prophetic words of Jesus, they left the city. And so we know some of them went to a location called the Pella before the Romans laid siege of Jerusalem and siege warfare. We talked about how that's a surrounding of the city, so no one gets in, no one gets out. But if you saw that abomination of desolation, which we talked about, you left and you were spared. Then Jesus turns to the second question, when will the end of all things occur? And for that, Jesus responds with basically, no one knows the day or the hours. Therefore, you always have to live in light of his return. Take every day as if Jesus Christ can return tomorrow. Live as if he's coming quickly or soon because he is coming quickly and soon. And so he ends this idea with giving us in this kind of final discourse some images and metaphors and parables to describe the reality of the second coming. And the first one we talked about last week, the parable of the ten virgins. Today we'll talk about two more. The parable of the sheep and the goats. And the first one, which we'll discuss, is called the parable of the talents. Matthew 25, 14. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now the first line is probably a bit confusing, for it will be like a man going on a journey. The question is, for what will be like a man going on a journey? And if you look at the verse before, it doesn't say, and the verse before that, it doesn't say. You have to go back to sort of the beginning of the literary unit where Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven will be like, and then he goes on and speaks these parables. So all of these parables are discussing what the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God will look like, in particular, with the second coming of Jesus. And so it'll be like a man going on a journey who called servants, and he entrusts them. 
He gives one of his servants five talents, another two, and another one. Now, uh, a talent is, is a measurement of weight. And so what's tricky is you're trying to figure out, well, what's he giving these guys? And likely, um, he measured out a talent of some precious metal. Could have been silver, gold, or maybe even copper, even though we wouldn't consider that like a precious metal. Um, so it makes it difficult to calculate exactly how much money he's giving these guys. But what you have to know is that it's not the, the sum total that's important. The important part is that he is giving each of these three servants an allotment of money. And the parable goes on. The man leaves on a far journey. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them. And he made five talents more. So also he who had two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. So uh, first guy doubles the money. The second guy doubles the money. The first guy goes from five to ten, second guy to two to four. But like these guys, they know what they're doing, man. Like these are the people who if you've got to set up like a, an account with to invest your money, man, you've got to go to these first two servants. They're doubling it up. The third person says that he receives only one talent and he, go, he goes and digs a hole and puts it in the ground. And that may sound a bit strange to us, but for an, an ancient person living in the ancient world, that's actually one of the safest kind of banking systems you could count on, was just digging a hole and burying it. So, I mean, it's actually not a, that much of a technical process. It looks something like this. Because the key is what? No one, go out in the night, make sure no one looking. You dig, and then I guess the hard part I'm assuming is then, you know, bearing it like, no, there's nothing dug up here. Just put, put some grass and some leaves, and you bury it. Sounds bizarre to us, but it's actually one of the most trusted and safest methods for, for securing money. Jesus actually tells other parables you might be familiar with where someone accidentally stumbles upon a buried treasure, like maybe some, some erosion happened or some water washed out some dirt and then you see like some, something exposed and you start to dig and there's a chest full of treasure. And we know historically, every so often, people still to this day will be out digging something and they'll find something hundreds of years old that was buried in the ground. So although it's weird to us, that's normal practice to secure money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Guy doubles the money, and he gets rewarded. He gets rewarded with two things, and both are interesting for different reasons. The first is, the master says, you've been a good and faithful servant, and because you've been faithful with a little, I'm going to set you over much. Now remember, this is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. And so whatever's going on in heaven, there's this idea that if you've been faithful here, you are granted more responsibility in the kingdom of heaven. Now we don't know exactly what that looks like, but it's important to note that heaven will not be still stagnant and stale, meaning it's not just this stagnant living where like you're just sitting on a cloud and it's like, 
all day long. It, it's dynamic, there's movement, and in some sense, there's like responsibilities that you still have. The second part of it is enter into the joy of your master. It's an interesting phrase, enter into the joy. Enter into his joy. And he also, who, and he who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered to me two talents here. I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So it's different here. Very little, right? Very little. The major difference is just that the first, <clears throat> excuse me, the first guy went from five to 10. This one goes from two to four. The, the rate is still the same. They're still doubling the money. But then the words that are spoken are the same. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. Very similar. So it's pretty much identical. And here's where things begin to change. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. Now this guy did the most safe thing you could possibly do by these ancient standards with this money. He protected it. He kept it safe. But he also didn't do anything with it. And the text is letting us know that the, the guy probably knew he should do something with it because he says, look, I know you're, you're a hard man, like you're tough, and you're a successful businessman. You reap where you do not sow, you're increasing what you have, and you expect that from your servants, but look, I also know you're a tough dude, so uh, I buried it and I kept it safe, here you go. He didn't lose it, but he didn't use it for any, anything. So how does the master respond? What's he gonna do? Good job, you kept it safe. The master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scatter no seed. There, then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has had the 10 talents. For to everyone who has more will be given and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a powerful lesson. What's this lesson? You know, Jesus really wants you with your money to set up long-term savings accounts that accrue interest <laughs> over time. No, it's, listen to the language here. It's not as if this servant just, like, he played it safe when he shouldn't have. Listen to the language. This is like ethical and moral failure to the highest degree. You wicked and slothful servant, or a translation of that could be lazy, you're wicked, lazy, slothful. And then go all the way down to the bottom. Verse 30, look at the language. And cast this worthless servant into the outer darkness. And that place there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now this weeping and gnashing of teeth, the outer darkness, is an image that Matthew has used previously that we've talked about, so we won't spend too much time here, but suffice to say that 
When Jesus begins to articulate the reality of the final judgment of the wicked, he uses the most terrible language available to him to describe that reality. So he'll talk about fire and darkness and weeping. It's like whatever language is, is the, the most terrible language he can employ to describe this reality says like, that's what it is. You wicked and slothful servant, get out of here. You were given something, you didn't lose it, but you did not use it. And you knew that I would have wanted you to use it. And at minimum, you could have at least got a little interest off of it. That's parable number one. Parable number two, parable of the sheep and the goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Now, Jesus here is employing an image that would have been readily available to the listeners of his day. And he does this often with his parables. He takes some images, and everyone knows what he's talking about, but sometimes we as modern people don't know what he's talking about. So this is an image based upon shepherding. And shepherds in this time and in this geographical region would often let the sheep and the goats graze together during the day. Sheep and the goats, they're all grazing together. But when the night came, and in particular in, in cold nights, the shepherds would separate the sheep from the goats and they would take the goats to a, a room or maybe something with an overhang to keep them a little bit warmer than the sheep. The sheep dealt better with the cold air of the night and could remain outside grazing but the goats needed to be brought in. So the image is separating sheep and the goats. And then there's this other, this, this, is, this is what you call a, a high Christology, meaning you need to make much of the person of Jesus to properly understand this. Jesus has been identifying himself in the last few chapters as this son of man figure. And as we talked about, the son of man figure is taken from a passage in Daniel 7. He again applies Daniel 7 and the son of man imagery, figure, character to himself. But he says, when the son of man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on a glorious throne and then he's going to judge the nations. The Son of Man, and Jesus is speaking of himself, will come in whose glory? His own. He's going to come in his, he has a glory all of his own. Secondly, he's going to gather all the angels and then sit on his glorious throne. And then he's going to judge all of the nations. Now, it just if, like, don't think of like, what's the right answer? Don't try to think about it. Just, if you get asked the question, who's going to judge the world? What's the answer? It's God is, the, like, you would say God. God is the judge of all things. Who is judging? Who is given the task of judging the nations? Jesus. Jesus is doing the act that is reserved for God all throughout the Hebrew scriptures. And he's claiming to have a glory all of his own and a throne all of his own. So it's like whoever Jesus is, he's much more than just some prophet, right? The parable goes on. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. 
I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. This beautiful future promise for the sheep in, the, in this parable. He says of the sheep of the righteous, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Before the sheep ever came to be, before they ever were known by anybody on this earth, God, before the foundations of the world, was preparing a place for them. Now the closest kind of thing we have to that in our, in our culture is when there's expecting parents, before they see the child born, before they see it, before they may even have a name, before they behold their child, parents will start what? Preparing a room for the child. And it's a way to say, before we set eyes on you, we already loved you. There was an immense amount of love before they even laid eyes on the child. And this love poured out into action of them preparing a room. And the room's gotta be just right, right? Because this is the baby. In the same sense, For the sheep, God has prepared a place for them before the foundations of the world. Then the righteous will answer him, the sheep, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and when when did we feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you? Or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. All right, tons here. There's tons here. But before we can even tackle what this is is getting at, we have to clear up some uh, interpretation issues. Because when this passage is discussed, and when it's usually taught, there's good intention And what is usually said is not necessarily wrong, it's just not what this parable is doing. So for the most part, when you hear this parable discussed, you hear something like, Jesus teaches that whenever you see someone who is in need, who is naked or poor or hungry or thirsty or sick or in prison, and you care for them, you show concern for them, you feed them, you give them water, you visit them, you care for the sick. Whenever you do that, for anyone who's in one of these conditions, is as if you're doing it to Jesus himself. Right, that's usually the summary. If you see someone in need and you help them, it's as if you're doing it to Jesus. And when you see someone in need, we're talking about anybody, just general humanity. Okay. Um, that, that's, that's not what's going on here. Jesus says at the end, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Those two phrases, least of these and my brothers, and the phrase as a whole, least of these, my brothers, all throughout the Gospels, and in particular the Gospel of Matthew, continuously, consistently refer to not humans in general, as if anyone is a brother or sister to Jesus in this sense, But when he says, my brothers, my brethren, the least of these my brothers, he consistently is referring to his disciples and his followers. That is clear all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
when Jesus says, my brothers, the least of these, the least of my, my brothers, he is talking about his followers, followers of Jesus. This is made so abundantly clear. One time Jesus says this in such a way that it's even shocking to us. We don't like Jesus' response, if we're honest with ourselves. There's a part way back in the Gospel of Matthew, if you might remember, where um, he's, he's out in public and he's doing some teaching, and then someone comes up to him and says, Jesus, your mother and your brother are here. And then he says what? He turns and he points his ha- hand out to his followers and says, no, th- this is my mother, this is my brothers, this is my family. And then he says, anyone who does the will of my father is my brother or my sister. So there's a logic to it. The one who is doing the will of the father is the part of the family of Jesus. So when Jesus says, the least of these, my brothers, that is a technical phrase used in the Gospel of Matthew to refer to followers of Jesus. Now, this does not mean Christians should not show care or concern for the weak, the sick, the imprisoned, whoever they may be, Christian or not. That's not what I'm saying. The scripture is filled with that type of stuff, love of neighbor type of stuff, the clear history of the church. The church has historically cared about those who are hurting, vulnerable, sick, all of that stuff. That's been the historical vocation of the church, and the scripture is filled with that type of stuff. However, that's just not what this parable is talking about. This parable is talking about the treatment of the followers of Jesus. Now, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it to me. Now when you make this interpretive switch, all kinds of things begin to open up, like all kinds of them. One of the most significant ones would never come to your mind unless you make that interpretive turn. So Jesus is saying, oh, when when you visit Christians who are in prison, when you visit Christians who are hungry, by the way, hungry doesn't mean like they missed lunch. In ancient standards, hunger is, is, is malnourishment, starvation, famine type stuff. He says, when you found the starving follower of Christ, when you found him in prison, when you found him naked, and by the way, naked doesn't mean zero clothing, that refers to poverty because it means you don't have enough money to buy outer garments. And so nakedness was not being, having the outer garments needed to protect you from the cold and exposure, etc. So Jesus is saying, when there's Christians in those situations, you treat them well, you're doing it up to me. Okay. It's real subtle, Well, you gotta catch this. Jesus is presupposing his followers will face immense hardships in this life. The, the logic of the parable only works if you understand Jesus is presupposing that his followers will face immense hardship in this life. They will be persecuted unto prison, they will face famine and starvation, they will be thirsty, they will be sick, they will be in desperate need of help which is the antithesis of something kind of in our culture called the prosperity gospel. I'm not gonna spend a big time explaining what the prosperity gospel is, but succinctly said, it's something like this. It's this teaching that says, if you just have enough faith, the more faith you have, the more material blessing you will receive in this life. So just have enough faith, brother or sister, and God will bless you, materially bless you. Looking for a better job, new car, new house? Just have the faith. And usually, most of the time, and for those of you who are familiar with this, you know what I'm about to say, faith is often associated with the demonstration of your faith by giving money to my particular ministry. 
So, you know, take out your wallet, give this amount of money, and then God will materially bless your faith. This parable is presupposing there will be faithful Christians in prison who are sick, who are thirsty, who are hungry. It's like God's promising it. How's that for the encouraging title of this sermon? The three promises, promises of God for you today. The word of God promises poverty, persecution, and prison. You know, we're gonna publish a new, a new devotional study Bible, the promises of God for you, how the promises of persecution, poverty, and prison can inspire you to face the world. Like, no one wants that. That's what Jesus is presupposing. Now, he's not saying every Christian in all places and all time will experience poverty, persecution, and prison and be sick and without food. And you know that because within the parable, there's other Christians who can provide help. But he is saying, in the normal course of history, Christians will find themselves in desperate need. And how you treat those people matters because what you do to them, it's like doing it unto the Lord. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me. These are the goats. You cursed into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me and naked and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Go to verse 41, to the goats on the left, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. It's really easy to miss. In the the portion dealing with the sheep, God had prepared a place for who? For them. The kingdom of heaven was prepared for them. And then this place of outer darkness, the eternal fire, this judgment, the opposite of that, is that prepared for the goats? No. That was actually prepared for the devil and his angels. God didn't prepare that place for humans. But humans who are consistently denied, and this is how you understand, this is how the parable is working. The Christians who are being treated poorly are being treated poorly because of their testimony of Christ. So there are people who were so utterly rejecting the gospel, maybe to the degree that they're persecuting them, because some Christians end up in prison, that for those who reject Christ, they are destined to go to the place of the angels who also rejected the Lord. But God's design wasn't for human beings to go there. So it's, it's real subtle. You, you could miss these things in scripture. This place is prepared for the sheep. And then the rebelliousness of the goats ends, ends up with them going to a place that was not initially prepared for them. It wasn't for them. But nevertheless, they will be a part of that place of judgment. Then they will also answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, truly, I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is the, the ending of the last formal teaching of Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew. He gives us these images, parable of the ten virgins, parable of the towns, parable of the sheep and the goats. So they're pretty important. Now what I want to do is take, take a, a step back and look at 
two big picture items. First big picture item is, is this, this big word, ecclesiology. It's a big technical term. Ecclesiology is the study of the church. Um, and it, it's like the theological study of what the church is, who the church is, what is the church composed of, all things dealing with the theology of the church. Um, it's, a, it's a tricky word to remember. If you know Spanish, it'll be easier, because in Spanish, the word for church is iglesia, and iglesia sounds a lot like the Greek word ecclesia, and all of those old Greek and Latin words are related to this big word, ecclesiology. So ecclesia, iglesia, then in English, church. <laughs> You're never going to remember it. Got to learn Spanish to remember the word. Okay. So what I'd like us to do is to think theologically about this parable. Specifically about the nature of the church and its relationship to Jesus. Because Jesus is making a, 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 like, a powerful claim. He's saying, what you do to my followers... It's like you're doing it unto me. What you do for my followers is like you're doing it unto me. And you have to ask yourself, how does that work? Like, what's the inner logic of it? So, so sometimes we just read scriptures and we go, oh, oh yeah, it's like doing it unto him. No, they're not just saying random things. There's a, a, a kind of biblical theological foundation that makes the inner logic of that statement work. So how is it that doing something to a Christian is as if you're doing it to Jesus? So you got to think about this, and, and you think about the nature of the church, and how is the church described in the New Testament? How is, how is the church pictured? One of the dominant images uh, for the church in the New Testament is the bride of Christ. The church is the bride of the groom, the bride of Christ, and we saw that imagery in some of the previous par- parables, right? Okay, but there's another image that's used all throughout the New Testament to describe the relationship of the church to Jesus, and that is, the church is the bride of Christ, and the church is also the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the body, and he nourishes the body. And so you see this language used all throughout the scriptures. And then you start to see sort of the, the, what we'll call the theological connective tissue, if you will. How is it that what is done to the body is it's done unto the Lord because Christ is the head of the church. He is the body. The people of God compose the body. So it's so strong. The unity between Christ and his church should be so strong that when you do it to a, something to a Christian, it's like being done unto the Lord. Now the logic of this goes even further because Christians compose the body of Christ. Therefore, we should also have such a unity with other Christians that we recognize we are all a part of the same body so that, for instance, if a particular Christian is experiencing a certain hardship, we take it as if that hardship is our own as well. And I'm not just making this up. This is actually explicitly stated in the New Testament in more ways than one. One of the areas in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the body of Christ. Christ is the head of the church. We're the body. The church is the body. And then he ends the section with this. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This is why um, if, if you hear like on the news or you're reading about the persecuted church, you're reading that there is 
there's a group of people on the other side of the world being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. You don't read that as, oh, there's some, this, there's some religious group on the other side of the world that's facing persecution. No, that, those are my brothers and sisters a part of the same blood-bought family that I'm a part of. They serve the same king and lord that I do. They aren't just random people. Those are my brothers and sisters serving the same lord, and they're suffering precisely because of their testimony and witness to Jesus. And so you pray with all the more fervor. It's not just random. And then in the church, when someone is experiencing pain and suffering, it's, it's... you enter into that with them. And some of you have experienced that, where let's say you're going through something and you're grieving, and there's a, there's a close friend who is so grieving because they are observing your grief that it's almost as if for a moment they're able to enter into your grief, and in their tears, maybe not to the same degree, the same degree, but in their tears, you feel a shared suffering by their suffering on your behalf. And in a strange, mysterious way, it's almost encouraging. It's like they're sharing in it with you. You're not alone. I'm here with you. When one suffers, the other suffer. If this was children's ministry, the way we'd illustrate it like this. It's kind of cheesy, but it actually works. It works perfectly. And if you've ever done children's ministry, you probably use this. It's like, we're the body of Christ. Uh, And even if it's just the pinky toe that's hurting... Have you had your pinky toe hurt so bad it ruined the whole day for the whole body? And you go, well, yeah, you know. I didn't grow in toenail. It was horrible. Wrecked the whole, I couldn't even think. There you have it. That's the body of Christ. Okay, now the next big picture thing. Deals with the issue of faithfulness. In all of these concluding parables, the talents, the, the ten virgins, the, the sheep and the goats, Jesus is dealing with the issue of faithfulness. He's saying that there's going to come a day when he returns. He's going to judge the nations. And you ought to live in such a way that you're living every day in light of that future reality. And so, be faithful in all things. In particular to the parable of the talents, you get Jesus saying, whatever you've been given in this life, make sure to be faithful with that. Now, this is a very important principle. Everyone is dealt a different hand of cards in life. We don't all come into the world with the exact same birth. Like some of people are born into wealth and riches. Some people are born into poverty. Some of you were born into loving, caring, nurturing families that that grew you and told you, loved you. And some of you were born into horrific family situations. Life is not fair. We don't get dealt the same hand of cards. And Christ is saying, whatever you've been dealt, whatever you've been given in this life, whether it's five talents, two talents, or one talent, you be faithful with that. God knows what you've been given. given. Remember the one with two talents went to four and the five went to ten? Did they not both receive the same language, enter into your master's joy? They were both shown faithful with what they were given. And that's reality. We've been given a different hand of cards. Like. And so let me, let me illustrate this. Let's say you, you are a person, you were, 
born in a poor country in a poor village to a poor family. And the only work that's available to you is like literally digging ditches. From sunup to sundown, you dig holes in the ground. And you make just enough money to get by. But there are also some people in your poor village that uh, they're elderly and they don't, have, they don't have surviving family members that care for them. And the ones that do don't really care for them well. And so once a week, you go buy, with your little bit of money, a big loaf of bread. And that bread's for you. But also, you take that one big loaf of bread, and you go and you visit those people in your small village that you know are lacking food. They don't have enough to eat. And you go there, and you share what little bread you have with them, and you tell them that they are loved, even if they feel forgotten by family members, they are loved, and Jesus loves them, and you are doing this in his name. Now, who's more hungry by the process of this sharing? You are, because you have less bread to eat. You are sharing in their hunger. You are participating in their suffering. And you are allowing yourself to enter into that so that you can show them the love of Christ. Now, do you, do you see how the body of Christ imagery works? How is God ministering to that person? God is ministering through his body. The spirit of God is empowering the individual as the body of Christ to minister to that person. Now, let's compare that person with, say, someone born in a different situation, more like one like ours is. Like, because you guys, you know, we've talked about this in the past, so I don't have to, to repeat this too much, but like even when things are hard in our current cultural context, they're still like better than a big portion of like how people live throughout all of human history. Like, you didn't worry about clean water today. You didn't worry about, is there going to be enough water to drink for my children? Okay. So, in our culture, uh, let's say there's someone, let's say you're someone, and you, you got a killer job, Silicon Valley. You're killing it, man. You make bank. You got all kinds of money. And you give, of all that money, you give 3% of your income away. You give 3% away. Now, your 3% of your salary is so much that in one paycheck, you can buy more bread than that other guy can probably buy in 10 years. Who is more faithful in those two situations? Now, here's the scary thing. Here's the scary thing. The scriptures also tell us that where much is given, much will be required. Have we not been given much? Are we not a blessed people? Have we not been blessed beyond measure? And so the idea in the scriptures is this. We, God blesses us, not so that we store up those blessings, or maybe the better analogy, not so that we find a hole in the ground and bury those blessings so they're secure for us, but the blessings come to us so that they may overflow and bless others. And in doing that act, we are the body of Christ doing what the head, Christ, has told us to do. Where much is given, much will be required. And so, Christ is coming back. How will you live in light of that truth, that ultimate reality? Don't hoard up blessings for yourself. You are the extension. Those blessings flow in and through you. Okay, here's a very scary Bible verse. It sounds super encouraging at first, but it probably should be a part of our uh, Promises of God study Bible. 
if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Oh, it's great, man. If you love me, I love you, Lord, keep your commandments. Okay. It's like, wait a second. You're saying if I love you, I keep your commandments? That, that's that's kind of rough when you actually start reading about all the commands of Jesus, right? Now, he, hear me on this. This verse is not saying if you love Jesus, uh, you will keep all of his commandments all of the time. And we know this because the scriptures talk again and again about confessing your sins to God, to one another, forgiveness and grace. So Christ also presupposes that his followers are gonna mess up and sin and have failures and all of that stuff. And we, we confess, we repent. So, so it's not saying you do it all the time. What it is saying is that if you are a follower of Jesus, you have a, a general desire to serve God. If you are a follower of Jesus, you have a general desire to obey his commands. Now, um, Oftentimes when we think about the commands of Jesus, we just think about like, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. That's, there's a lot of things that says don't do, and you shouldn't do those because it'll, it'll end up bad for you. But the scriptures also talk about a ton of stuff that you should be doing. What, what, remember the parable, the hungry, the needy, the one in prison. Those aren't don't do things, those are be proactive and do, care and love and serve. So it's not just don't do, it's a do which means there's a lot of things that if you claim to love God, you should be doing. Now, uh, oftentimes in the church world, when you start talking, you start telling Christians, you need to have like, you should be doing good things. You should have good works. You should have a ton of good, if you love God, you should have good works. There's like this, especially if you, if you grew up in church, there's like this nervousness that starts happening. Is, is, is he talking works righteousness, that I need works to be saved. This is starting to sound legalistic. He's saying, I gotta have all these good works if I love God. Um, okay, doesn't mean that. I'm actually just using the, the words of scripture. If you love him, you will keep his commands. Legalism or works righteousness is the idea that I will be saved or justified by God because of my works because of works of the law. Now, that is completely not true, it's not the case. You are saved because of his grace. You didn't bring anything to the table, you didn't have any good works. The Bible says you were an enemy of God, you didn't love him, but in his gracious act, he gave you grace and brought you in. And he puts his spirit inside of you and you become born again. And what the scriptures say again and again and again and again is if you've truly received his grace and you know you did nothing you did nothing to deserve it you didn't do anything you receive that grace his spirit comes in you you're born again that coming out of that there is a love for god when you know what he's done for you how could you not love him when you know what he's in how could i not love you and when you love him there will be a now new natural maybe supernatural desire to obey his commands. I love you, Lord. I'm not doing these things to earn anything. I'm doing them because I love you. And so doing works is not legalism. The biblical word that's used to describe doing good works before God, the biblical word is faithfulness. It's not legalism, it's faithfulness. But you're not doing it to earn salvation or justify yourself. You're doing it because you save me. I love you. This is the desire of my heart. Think of it like this. Um, if you're married, 
It's their 10-year anniversary. You don't go about your 10-year anniversary like, oh, I gotta do, gotta get my wife some good presents to earn this marriage. Gotta earn the marriage. No. At an anniversary, I I want to bless my wife because I love her. It's my joy to see her filled with joy. You see how this works? It's cyclical. It brings me joy to make my wife happy. To see her filled with joy makes me joy-filled and happy. I'm not doing this to, oh, I gotta make sure I earn the marriage. No, it's precisely because in love I married her and out of that love flows an abundance of, of loving actions. James, the apostle, when we read this, you have to note, like, James had to have had the parable of the sheep and goats on his mind when he wrote this. Look at this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You see our brother or sister in the faith desperate in need of something and you can help them and you just say, eh, go in peace, man. James is saying, do you have faith to begin with? Is there, is there any real living faith in there? It doesn't justify you, but there, there's, there's no faith or there's dead faith because if you love God, how could you not love his people? If, if, if you love God, how could you not want to obey him? Again, you will fail, you will falter, you will sin, but generally speaking, if you love, when you know what he's done for you, you want to serve him. If you love your wife, don't, don't, doesn't it bring you joy when she's happy? So, the ending of these three parables, what are we to do? We are called to live in light of the fact that no one knows the day or the hour. No one knows. And so we live every day as if it counts because it does. It matters. And we are to be faithful with whatever we have and even in this room, there is a wide diversity of what we've been given in this life. Different families, different pains, different failures, different successes, different victories. Whatever we come to the table with, one talent, two talent, ten talents, a hundred talents, God calls us to be faithful with what we've been given. And what does that look like? It looks like everything Jesus has been teaching us. All the commands that he's been laying out through the gospel of Mark. To love God, to love your neighbor as yourself to give generously, to care for those in need, to turn the other cheek, to not turn to anger and violence, to put away lust, to be faithful. All of those things, that's what it means to walk in light of the second coming. Now, last part. Because uh, there's still some of you who are rightly saying, okay, Isaac, I get it all. I'm saved by grace. Uh, I do love God. And I do have this general desire to obey God's commands. But if I'm being honest, most of the time it's kind of easier to not obey a lot of them. It's easier to be angry. It's easy to, to, to turn to lust. It's, it's easier to tr- not turn the other cheek, right? You ever get slapped? No, I ain't turning the other cheek. God, God forgives. I don't. Let's go. So in one sense, you're going, no, I'm there. I love God and I want to serve, but I find myself. Here's the thing. If you love God, you'll obey his commands. Let me show you what Jesus says right after this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I 
will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. In other words, follow this. Even the good things that you do in love of God cannot be claimed with moral superiority or your own moral righteousness because even those good deeds were not done completely by the works of your hands. God has sent his spirit to empower you to obey his commands. You were not left alone. He sends you the spirit to empower you to live in a way that honors him. So you're saved by grace, it's of your not doing, and the fruit of that should be good works, but guess what? Even those good works that you're doing are being empowered by the work of the Spirit so that everything in your life is grace upon grace upon grace. And when you love him, you'll say, Lord, convict me. Lord, empower me with your Spirit. Give me eyes to see like you see. Give me ears to hear like you, you hear. Help me love you and love my neighbor as you've called me to. Now here is, here's the last part of all of this. Why, are you the bo- why, why can we say that you're the body of Christ? Remember, we ask theologically, how can we say that if you treat a Christian like this, like you're doing it to Jesus? Well, it's because you're the body of Christ. Well, how can you be the body of Christ? Well, because Christ says, that he will put his spirit inside of you and you will be a temple of the Holy Spirit. Jesus prophesied that in 70 AD, the temple would be destroyed. And part of that was judgment on the religious establishment of the day. But the other part of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD was the fact that the purpose of the temple as it was doing its kind of vocational role in the first century had become obsolete because God would not merely dwell in his house on Mount Zion in Jerusalem, but the veil in the temple would be torn at the crucifixion of Jesus and the spirit of God would go into anyone who confesses the name of Jesus. Therefore, you as a follower of Jesus are a temple of the Holy Spirit, which means wherever you go, whoever you minister to, whoever you encounter in your normal mundane everyday activities, you are bringing the spirit of the living God with you. You are being the body of Christ precisely because Christ is the head and his spirit, the presence of the living God, is inside of you. And as you interact and minister to others, you are being the body, the hands, the feet. Every encounter you have with a human being, you are bringing the holy, sacred presence of God with you. That's a very important job. So we remind ourselves, he's coming back. He's coming back soon. I have not been left alone. I will never experience a day alone. If you are a Christian, even if you feel lonely, you will never experience a day alone. God's spirit is with you, will never leave you nor forsake you, and it will empower you for works of ministry, for good works. And in all of that, you can say, Lord, I loved you. You saved me, and every good thing I've ever done is because of your grace, and I love you for it. So with all of that, let's stand as we take communion.